This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and as always, I have to thank my patrons. They are my personal lords and saviors, and I could not do the show without them. So for this week, I have to thank Sean, Lena, and Andrew. Thank you so much. So for anyone who wants to join their number, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar a month, five dollars a month. You get extra content every single week, including the House of Heretics podcast where my friend Timothy, former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic, and I talk about uh, religion, Satanism, philosophy, news, all the or whatever else uh, we, you know, whatever else strikes our fancy. And it is a live show. Patrons are uh, invited to join us every Wednesday morning. It is a lot of fun. So if that is interesting to you, then please become a patron and it ensures the long life of this show and my writing. There are other ways to support the show. However, one of the best ways is to just leave five stars on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That tells our digital overlords that the show is worth sharing with others. And also, please subscribe to my newsletter. If you enjoy Sacred Tension, then you will certainly enjoy my blog and newsletter. Just go to stephenbradfordlong.com. There's a link in the show notes. Enter your email and you will get me in your inbox. It'll be like a, you know, horror slasher movie where I just keep reappearing in your life, whether you want me or not. All right. With all of that out of the way, I am delighted to welcome my old friend Gareth Higgins to the show. How are you? Not that old. Not that old. Well, we've known each other since like 2014. <laughs> oh, 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 I get it. I get the joke now. Okay. Well, yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, old is, old, old is not, I shouldn't, old is not a pejorative. Absolutely. There are people who fall into themselves, sink into themselves and become wise sages with age. So Yes. And you're definitely yeah, going we have to be known, one of those people. Since, and you're not old either. Okay, but uh, since 2014, these days, that's like a, that's like an eon. <laughs> that that is an eon ago. That's almost a decade ago. We've almost known each Ooh. other for a decade. By the way, wow. you have been described to me as a hot ginger teddy bear by someone. Oh mercy! Who will I? Who will not be named? The you know here's the thing. I I I welcome I welcome all affirmation <laughs> wherever it comes from. I I think I think the the beard. Uh, color that I sport, I think would be the the verb is actually auburn rather than ginger. But cultural differences yep. uh, lead to people ascribing different different uh, names. Uh-huh. So I'll take the I'll take the ginger. Very good, excellent. All right. So tell us some about who you are and what you do. I'm a hot Irish ginger or auburn <laughs> teddy bear, apparently. <laughs> 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 Which is all true. Yes. Uh, I, I, well, th- thanks for having me on again. I've been on with, with you once before. You, and I, you were one of really, our first guests. Yeah. Eons and I ago. really value what you do on this show. I value your writing. I was reading, you may find this hard to believe, I was reading archive posts on your blog just a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh, nice. You have a really, you have a really wonderful post about how to have a healthy relationship with social media. And then uh, another piece about uh, Satanism and, and, and not being an ironic Satanist. And I, I, I think your writing is wonderful. I really well, thank you. Uh, uh, appreciate what you're doing and what you're trying to do. So I'm from Ireland. I live in North Carolina much of the time. I have been the beneficiary, the recipient of many 
mentors who've who've shared their wisdom in their lives with me and encouraged me and affirmed me. And I guess the way people often lead a response to tell us about yourself or who you are, or what do you, we talk about our work. I don't really like to do that because I feel like it's, it's all sort of mixed in together. My, my passions are about storytelling and how to tell a story about who we are as humans at this moment in history, what we're here for and how to be. And there's nothing original here. It's just listening to wiser people and then finding it maybe a different way to talk about it. And so the stories that I enjoy the most are the ones that come through cinema, which I've been obsessed with since I was a child because my parents introduced me to great movies when I was younger. Uh, and I'm involved in community work in the form of uh, retreat gatherings where we bring small groups of people together to reflect on our own stories and how we can be of better service in the world and also discern our own needs. Uh, there's, there's a, I think there's a problem that, that faces a lot of us in our culture, which is you either become an individualistic individual who lives in competition with everybody else for the rest of your life, and because of a fear of scarcity or an actual lived experience of scarcity, there's not much time or space left over to imagine what you could do in service for others, or you you serve the world into your own martyrdom. So you just give and give and give and give and give, but you never discern your own needs or ask for help. I'm definitely not that yeah. <laughs> kind of person. I'm I'm asking for help all the time. I'm I'm fortunate in that people taught me to ask for help. Um, so we do these retreats and we do small festivals and I'm involved in what you might call transformative men's work, which is trying to help men and people who identify as, as, as male to find the deeper levels of our own maturity, hmm. uh, our own ancient wisdom, and to heal from some of the wounds that particularly affect men in our culture that gets summarized and oversimplified as toxic masculinity involved in some work that tries to help transform that in me and in other people too. And I love having conversations. I love writing. I love walking by the water. And probably the thing that I love the most and love the most about my life is friendship and being in encounters with people, even if I'm only friends with them for five minutes. Yeah. Uh, someone at the checkout, someone I only meet once. That's how I we met. met. You at, I met yeah. you at a checkout, uh, yeah. and 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 you were so welcoming. Or people that I've been with and are and are and have been with me for decades, and and more um, friendship and encounter with other human beings is just the best thing. It's the best thing. I love that. Uh, I I love that self introduction as a description of who you are and what you do, and. So you brought up men. We might need to do another show about that because I'm I'm trying to find mm. people who that that is mm. not the topic of today's show. Maybe we'll get into mm. it. But I'm I'm really interested in the state of men as a man, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. as someone who works with a lot of men, who interacts with a lot of men, and trying to find people to discuss. The challenges that men are experiencing without descending into weird, gross, um, <laughs> red pill stuff, mm -hmm. right? And so we mm -hmm. might, <laughs> we might need to do a follow up conversation because the number of men who I meet who tell me that they just don't have friends, 
where that is just a fact of their life is staggering to me. So, you know, at work, I, I'll train a lot of guys and we'll start talking. And one of the things that usually comes out during those conversations is, oh, I don't have any friends. You know, I, I play video games. I, mm-hmm. I don't have any meaningful connection whatsoever with other people, except maybe my girlfriend. So, yeah, there's there's yeah. something wrong. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's something yeah. going very wrong with men. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I know, you know, if, if, of course, I'd be glad to come back and have another conversation about this. And there's other people who talk about it much better than I can. I, let me just say two very brief things, if, mm. I, if I may. Absolutely. Uh, one, w- one is that it's, it's pretty clear. It seems pretty clear that the friendlessness of men, mm-hmm. of many men, is one of the reasons why some communities are having a lot of success in attracting men that then end up not necessarily having the best impact on the world oh yeah no that that's uh, absolutely because true. if a if a community will gather around you and meet your needs for connection then it's almost secondary what that community yeah. stands for we're and, simple creatures uh, we we need to be fed where, yeah and if nobody else is reaching out to you that's so so that's that's one piece the other piece is it's it's connected to that is if the bar for entry to a uh, common good oriented community or a more a community that respects the dignity and interdependence of all of all living beings something like you know and that's a very highfalutin phrase uh, but if the bar for entry is ideological purity or you need to know that you think all the right things before you're allowed into the community, that's a problem too. And I think some of us who come from the more, uh, we can use the word progressive world, and that's not a perfect term. One of the things we really need to examine at the moment is, are we making it too difficult for people to join our communities because they haven't fully grasped some of the ideological shifts or even some of the terminology or thinking the quote-unquote right thing to be allowed in uh, before you get cancelled. There are a lot of people out there who want to do good and want to care for people, and they are people of compassion and respect, but they haven't been exposed to some of the ideas that some of our generation sort of takes for granted. So that's that's one piece is if we we got to make the bar for entry simpler. And then the other piece is in working with men, particularly, if you're trying to do transformative work with men and you don't have a connection with wise elders and you don't have a connection with, let's just call it a higher power, uh, to use the language of recovery, whatever that means to you, a, a source of power beyond yourself. And if the outcome does not lead to those men treating people of all genders better, then it's seriously deficient at best. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there is transformative work out there that does help men treat everybody better, including themselves. Yeah, I would love to talk more about that. And you're hitting on on all of my wheelhouses in those two points that you just made. But so so let's move on to your book, though. You <laughs> you wrote I, I read some of it over the past couple of days. I have never read your writing. We've spoken mm. a lot, but I, I don't think I've ever read your writing. And you're just such a gorgeous writer. You, your mm. prose is really beautiful. Um, you have a new book called How Not to Be Afraid. And let's start with Northern Ireland. 
growing up in Northern Ireland and how that shaped the message that you're trying to convey in this book. Yeah, well, you know, it, right now I'm looking out the window at the exact view. Well, not the exact view. I'm looking at this. At, at, I'm looking in the same direction that the view from my childhood home had. I'm a bit closer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm down. I'm further down the hill from the house I grew up in, but I'm currently in an apartment that's very close to where I grew up. And I'm looking out over Belfast Loch, which is where you know it's famous for being where the Titanic left uh, on her way to Southampton uh, before. Uh, she was officially launched and um, so one thing to say is like I can't imagine my life without being so close to water and coastal water in in particular and so you know it would be easy and some to some respect obvious to for me to talk about Northern Ireland and the political conflict and the political peace building process here as being the most important aspect of my childhood and my formation and it may well be but it's also very important that I grew up on the coast because growing up on the coast and growing up on an island, I think has at least two impacts or had on me. One was the coast meant it was easy to imagine a vision of something bigger. What's out there? What's what's over the other side? And being on an island meant it was easy to feel like you could be effective in your activism because you're dealing with a very small place. Hmm. That may sound paradoxical, given that we were living through a civil conflict that took the lives of so many people, physically injured so many more people, and seemed like, you know, it was it was this 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 cut right through the center of our society, and everybody experienced the suffering. But from before I was even born, I was born in 1975. Before I was even born, there were people involved in peace and reconciliation work here, in this place, this place that is legally called Northern Ireland, uh, but uh, the people who live here and who care about this place disagree about what it should be called. Some people call it the North of Ireland. I call it Northern Ireland with a small N. I spell it with a small N as a way of saying we need to come up with language that can either try to meet everybody's needs or not pick one side or the other. I want to be on the side of the reconcilers. I want to be on the side of uh, the healers, on the, the side of the nonviolent. And there are people on whose shoulders my generation stands who, uh, when the violence was at its height, were risking their lives to speak with the people who were supporting the use of violence and also seeking to make a more just society so that the reasons some people felt they had for using violence would be addressed and then nobody would feel like they had any reasons to use violence. So I'm definitely shaped by growing up in a society that had this awfulness happen in it and and very painful things happen to my family uh, and to people close to me. And the ceasefires that paved the way for the official peace process took place when I was 19 years old. So my entire childhood, there was active civil conflict. Living here, being born into it, It was sort of, at one level, it was normal unless it actually directly affected a loved one. And like I say, it did directly affect my family. And some people I care about suffered. It sanitizes it to say bereavement. Family members of people that I know well were killed. They were murdered. And and some of those people are people who, to put them on a pedestal would actually be to disrespect them because they don't want to be more than human They don't want to be known for what they suffered, but I have this deep respect for people who did experience such a terror 
because many of them stayed here and got involved in trying to make this place better, uh, even in the face of such terrible loss. So I'd say growing up in a place that was small enough that you could see change happening and you could participate in it, growing up by water. And I think there is a kind of a, like a poetic thing about water, maybe even a spiritual thing about being near water. I still feel even when I'm in Asheville, I, li- I like to go and be by lakes. They're not the same as being on the coast, but I like being by lakes and rivers. And I think humans generally probably just like to be by water and then to be around this terrible thing, this big dramatic thing, and then to see it change, to see it change and to be invited in a very small way to be alongside that change as a lot of people my generation were to be involved in peace building uh, is, I mean, I, I could say it's a gift. I could say it's a burden. I could say it's a mixed blessing. I could just say it is what it is. It is what it is. And your story is just as interesting. Um, that's maybe the last thing is that it can be too easy for people from where I'm from to pump up our own stories or to see our own stories as being more valid than other people. And that's something I'm really keen to work with, particularly lately. I've been thinking a lot about how do you tell stories in a compelling way that that can speak deeply to people, but doesn't make you the subject of the story or the center of the story uh, that actually helps people see themselves as being just anything magical that they feel about the story is already inside them. And they are just as valuable as anything valuable in the story. Mm. So it sounds like part of your work is helping people. And and this includes men. This includes all people that you work with is, um, helping them tell a story about their own lives maybe that can instill hope for them and can instill kind of a, a greater sense of of awe or well-being or healing mm-hmm. how do you tell us how do you tell a story of your life and of the world in such a way that it creates for lack of a better term progress am i right about that is that the vibe that yeah. i'm getting Yeah, I mean, it's bigger than, you know, you said, for lack of a better word, progress. There's a bigger word. I don't quite know what it is. Mm. It might be life, Mm -hmm. might be life. Maybe it's life. Maybe it's maybe it's love. But I think, you know, one. it seems to me there's building blocks here. One is uh, human beings are storytellers. Uh, We create meaning through the stories we tell and our experience of reality always has, even if it's just a, a thin film of interpretation, our experience is always mediated through a story we're telling about it. Yeah. Like, what does it mean that this thing is happening to me? So reality is is never just reality. It's it's the way we experience it is the story we tell. Yes. Um, I think those two statements are pretty clearly objectively true statements. Human beings are storytellers, and our experience of reality is the story we tell about it. Uh, not not it's not. It's not objectively the reality itself. I think the third thing is most of us don't know this. The fourth thing is most of us are living unconsciously stories that other people told us. Yeah, they're zombie um, stories. They're just they're just walking. They aren't. They're they're yeah, alive. They're unconscious. they're unconscious. They're they're just shambling along. They're yeah. unconscious. They're zombie stories. Yeah, um, unless you wake up from it, and that's and yes. I don't want to condescend to people because this was this is I think this is just our culture. All of us are born into stories that other people tell. Now, if you had really conscious storytellers in your life, mm. family members, teachers, 
whatever. Maybe somebody told you that, uh, or maybe something arose inside you, which you know might be a a spiritual thing. Might be you were in the right place at the right time. Then maybe you woke up out of this earlier. But most of us don't wake up. Most of us don't. And um, that's just human nature. Uh, that that isn't. Yeah. Th- that I don't even know if that's specific to our culture. That's just the way human beings are. Yeah, like that's not, our default, right? I think it's our default. I do think it's our default in this culture. I don't know enough mm. about other cultures to speak to that. And I don't know. Therefore, I don't know if it's human nature or human culture. Mm. I do feel like it's pretty observable. Most people in our shared culture, which is culture that used to be called the West, right? Um, uh, most people seem to be unconscious of the story they're telling or the fact that they are a storyteller and that it takes some kind of intervention or initiatory process mm. to wake us up out of this. There are some lovely examples in in, uh, in fictional storyteller. One, one of my favorite is in Field of Dreams, there's a moment where uh, Kevin Costner's brother-in-law, played by Timothy Busfield, who's a banker who cannot see the ghostly baseball players who have come to practice in Kevin Costner and Amy Madigan's farm. He just Mm -hmm. can't see them. They're standing there. The audience can see them. Everybody else can see them, but he can't. Mm. And then a crisis happens that he causes where he, 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 he initiates a series of events that nearly leads to the death of his, of his niece. And then she gets fixed and everything's fine. And that kind of shock trauma crisis, after he is sure that the girl's okay, he's in this kind of, this, the reverberation of the shock is happening to him. And he's looking around and he says, when did all these ball players get here? <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful picture of intervention initiation, mm-hmm. that something needs to happen to us. And it doesn't have to be a tragic shock, but it often is. It often is a death or the end of a relationship or a sense of failure in something uh, that uh, creates the space in which we can reimagine the story and maybe see things that were not there before. Now, I'm not an expert on this. I didn't realize that the reason Jiminy Cricket is called Jiminy Cricket is that he's a cricket until last night. So don't be don't be thinking that I'm an expert. I often <laughs> don't. I, I was watching the new Pinocchio and it's like, oh, he's a cricket. That's why they call him Jiminy Cricket. I never, yeah, you're, I you're never not, understood that. You're not claiming to be a Jordan Peterson who 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 can come up with weird, in-depth narrative <laughs> archetypes of for crickets and, and Jiminy and bellies of the beast well, i mean and... jiminy cricket does represent something archetypal oh, of course he, of course he's he the does. personification but of conscience but basically um, you're 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 going you're you're like the the gin the gay ginger irish teddy bear jordan peterson who isn't a, who, who isn't also a weird creep oh god bless everybody and let's 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 leave jordan peterson out of it <laughs> we? Because, i can't i can't um, i can't leave jordan peterson out of anything because i'm so you're, absurdly you're, fascinated you're, with him it's a morbid fascination i cannot look away because, so I'll, I'll say this if no you, you go ahead well no just just because he represents i mean speaking of stories speaking mm. speaking of stories mm-hmm. he is telling a story that is capturing people's imagination mm-hmm. in what would previously be called the West, especially among men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And I am fascinated by what that story is and why him, why sure. Jordan Peterson. And there's there's a, as is so often the case with with kind of far right conservative thinkers. So I, I read a lot of books by conservatives and I listen to a lot of podcasts. And as all there's always an element there where I'm like, there's real value there, but I wish someone else had written this. Uh, right. And so I wish sure. someone I wish someone else had written 12, 12 rules for life. There is something mm-hmm. valuable there, but mm-hmm. it's almost like a shadow of what it could could have been. Well, and and all I all I would say to in response to that is I wish I could be in conversation with him. Me too. Like I wish I could be in conversation with anybody who I think is making an honest attempt. I mean, t- to me, yeah. I, I think he's making an honest attempt from within his world to say meaningful things. And, and sometimes he does. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and sometimes I, and it's up, very profound. Yeah. So growing up in this part of the world, it's it's quite easy for me to resonate with what you just said about I wish someone else had written it because sometimes people who whose politics were implacably opposed to mine and who might even want to implement decisions that would hurt me, they also said things that were true. And they yes. may have been the only people who were saying those things. And that's one of the things I mean about we got to make the bar lower for yes. entry to the community of the common so, good. So so um, so we we were t- you were talking about that just before we started recording. Could you could you kind of explain what you mean by that? We need to lower the bar of entry. So if if we tell people that you can't join our movement because you haven't read the right academic treatise on this particular issue or you have you are you you don't know the quote-unquote right terminology or you're 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 brave enough to say out loud i haven't figured out what i think about these questions yet yeah i'd like to learn more if we if we tell people that then we're going to be at at the very least ineffective movements we're going to shrink the number of people who can who can be involved uh, we, I think we have to, I mean, there have to be certain kind of common values or virtues to me, do no harm would be that that's, that's maybe the only one actually that we need to all agree upon. Do no mm-hmm. harm. Now, of course, people will then define what harm means. And I'm, I'm only in a position to define it for myself. And I want to listen to you and I want to listen to other people and ensure that the table is, is, is. Uh, I was going to say broad enough, but I don't know that I want a broad table. The table is inclusive enough Mm -hmm. and consciously engaged with people who represent those whose voices have not been heard at the center. Of course, having said that, it tends not to be the people representing historically marginalized groups who are the most ideologically purist. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think it it tends to be, my sense is that it's kind of white, middle-class, cisgender people like me who i suspect are trying sincerely to do something good but it's motivated by guilt Hmm. and and it's motivated by fear to some degree compassion's in there as well really what i'm saying is we need to be less perfectionist yeah and we need to be less perfectionist in the way we talk and listen with each other and 
to go back to Jordan Peterson, if you were here, I'd want to engage him in conversation. I'd want to say, hey, tell me more about this. I'd, I'd want to say to him, you know, when people call you a far right conservative, what's your response? Because I know that he does not hold yeah. all the political positions that, and- that traditional far right conservatives would hold. I also somebody said something to me 20 years ago that's about that's far more important to me than what I think about Jordan Peterson or any one individual thinker or teacher. And that is don't ever say that you know what somebody's motivation is unless they've told you what their motivation is. And even then, be skeptical because they might not have told you the truth or they might they might have told you the best they can and they're not even fully aware of it. And this was in the context of me. I was writing a, a piece at the time. I was a sociology grad student writing about people who believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. And um, I the there was a professor who said, who challenged me because I was using this phrase frequently in the piece saying that people who have this belief use this belief to reinforce their politics. That was the phrase I said. They, they use this religious belief to reinforce their political prejudice. And the professor said to me, how do you know that they use it? And I, and I stumbled and he said, did any of them tell you that they use it? And I said, no, none of them told me that they use it. He said, is it not possible that they actually just believe it? <laughs> right? mm-hmm. That they're not using it. It happened. It coincides. Yes. And they, the two beliefs, the political belief and the religious belief feed off each other. But there's nobody Machiavellian sitting in an underground chamber with a blueprint, rubbing their hands together and saying, <laughs> I'm going to take my religious belief, which I don't really believe. And I'm going to use it to bolster my religious bigotry, which I think will achieve things for me in the long run. He, he said the, the the simpler and the more accurate interpretation is these folks just genuinely believe this. Now, then you get into why do they believe it and why have they not been exposed to other ideas and what happens when you do expose people to other ideas and how quickly those beliefs erode and get replaced with something else. I want communities to agree to do no harm to each other and to the members of the communities and to have some broad agreement about what doing no harm would mean. And I want to not impute motive to people uh, without them telling me what their motive is. And even when they tell me what their motive is, I want to be skeptical mm, absolutely, uh, or at least curious about that. And I also want to, you know, just clarify to everyone listening, even if sometimes I'm critical of Jordan Peterson, I also know a lot of people whose lives have been by my eyes changed for the better by, mm-hmm. by him. And if you are one of those people, I'm not going to I don't want to take that away from you. You know, I celebrate the fact that he that that, you know, if you had an addiction or if you were in a Mm -hmm. dark place in life and he was one of the people who got you out of that, that's great. And I'm happy for you. And I'm glad that he was the I'm glad that he was there in your life at the right time to help you do that. So and, and you know, he's a complex figure and people are complex. And I, I feel like that's one of the other implicit messages that you're getting at is are we telling a story in which people can be complicated in which someone <laughs> you know are, are we telling a story in which someone yeah. can be can can have complex motives that maybe we don't know someone can, can someone can be someone can can be motivated or, or or someone can be doing the best they they know how to do with mm-hmm. what they have been given and still do a certain amount of harm despite oh, that. Oh, sure. Like me. Like me. Exactly. Like me. Well, well, also, um, you know, like, I, I I, don't know. I, I think some people sometimes, I, th- I think people sometimes have a hard time understanding, and by people, I mean some people online, 
you know, so, a few people on Twitter, a, a small handful of them, I think sometimes have a hard time understanding why I have so much time for people who just have, I think, terrible beliefs, who have terrible <laughs> beliefs about trans people, about gay people, mm, mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. me as a gay person, mm-hmm. about people of different faiths. Mm-hmm. And I actually have a lot of time for for those people. And I have a lot of time for them because I was once one of them. And the mm-hmm. reason why I'm no longer one of them is because people had time for me. They would hear me out. They would they would talk to me. And mm-hmm. their barrier for entry or, or, or their, their bar for entry was really low. <laughs> it was low enough for someone like me who had pretty toxic beliefs to enter their space and communicate and not everyone should do that depend you know mm-hmm. if you're if you're trans maybe don't talk to transphobes that's great protect yourself i also can't deny the fact that i am who i am and i am where i am now because other people were generous and compassionate and kind and saw my humanity and chose to help me work through my stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I am where I am. The It's funny. I mean, I, I don't want to lose the thought and say, I would love to see Jordan Peterson be in dialogue. And I mean, genuine dialogue, curiosity, asking questions and listening uh, with Adrian Marie Brown, who, if, if, you know, people, some people listening will know who Adrian Marie Brown is and someone who represents a, a world of difference, but uh, compassion, passion, courage, humor, and curiosity. And that's the piece. Curiosity. I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like there's no part of what's happened in the last 20 years with social media and, and online connection is that we're start because we have the capacity to be in conversation with anyone. There's sort of this assumption that we should be, or that the default is we should be, and that you're bad if you don't. Uh, and then how do you decide? Like before, before email came along, I couldn't talk to people all the time. Yeah, <laughs> and people didn't have my phone number. You couldn't break the you laws know? of physics, right? You could, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, like, if it's dangerous, don't you know? Make your own decisions about what you are called to, what you're called to step into. Uh, seek allies who will speak instead of you in places that might be risky, uh, even if it's, you know, whether it's risk to your emotional health or certain f- physical risk. Most of the time it's not. Okay. Most of the time it's about discomfort and peace building here in Northern Ireland. Most of the peace building that has been done has been between people who were politically different, but they didn't pose each other a threat. There were people. And it was the smallest number of people who went consciously to talk with people who might be posing a physical threat. It's always going to be the smallest number that do that. It only needs to be the smallest number of people that do that because the people that pose the direct physical threat are also the smallest number of people in those political movements. Mm. Yeah, that's so, right. Uh, and, and yes, there is a noble and effective history in nonviolent movements where people did form human chains to prevent someone getting down a street who, who did someone harm or, you know, lived, lived the Underground Railroad. All, all, of course, all that stuff. But it's always the smaller number of people that are involved in that work. That does not mean that the rest of us lack courage or 
are or don't care. It mm-hmm. just it just means you discern what you're called to do. One of my favorite people here in this place in the north of Ireland, someone I only met on a handful of occasions. I wish I had known him more. Father Jerry Reynolds, a redemptorist Catholic priest with a beautiful, soft, gentle voice that I like to say he could talk to you about the about the chemical reactions that go on in the mixing of cement and it would still it would still heal your inner child just to listen to him talking about that right right and he was deeply involved in peace building and because peace is a nice gentle word it sometimes masks the hardest parts of it yeah you know it meant danger at times the the brutality of it yeah and yeah and i think and it meant exhaustion and it just meant a lot of time being given to this. And Father Jerry died a few years ago. He lived to be a brave old age. And I was talking with someone who knew him very, very well the other week. A guy called Ed from New Jersey who lives here in Belfast and is and is involved in carrying on piecework. A lot of people from the U.S. have come to live in Ireland and have been have made beautiful contributions here. Ed was saying to me that Father Jerry spoke about himself as having an L plate on his chest. Now, an L plate is what in the UK a learning driver puts in the back window and the front window of the car when they're learning to drive. L stands for learner, Mm. and it shows the other drivers uh, on the road that this is someone who doesn't know how to drive yet. We're all learning. We're all learners. We're all learners. And and this man, I mean... Father Jerry was awarded one of the most prestigious peace awards on the planet. And he still said, I have an L plate. I have an L plate on my chest. And that's, that's Mm. what I want. That's what I want. That's actually, to me, that could be a foundational story along with do no harm. Recognize we all have an L plate in something. Then to extend the metaphor, after you get your driving test here in in the, the, the part of Ireland that is legally called the, the United Kingdom, uh, the L plate comes down, but you don't put up an E plate for expert. You put mm-hmm. up an R plate for, I think it stands for restricted. And that means for the first year after you've got your driving test, there are limits to where you can drive and how fast you can drive. So you have like a year on probation, it's, as it were, you know, you're easing in. So we all have an L plate for something. We all have an R plate for something. And then each of us has one or two things that's the thing we know, the thing we know. And usually it's something that came through hard experience. Hmm. And if we truly know it, it'll just be what people pick up on by being around us, but we'll also share it with humility, Hmm. you know. We'll also say, well, if you ever want to talk about that, I'd be glad to chat with you about those things. We don't need to put out a press release every time we've discovered something. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, sometimes we need to intervene and stop someone putting their hand in a fire mm. if they don't know the fire is going to burn them. But for the most part, knowledge and, and the telling of stories can be transmitted slowly over time. And the story that we have, uh, that our culture is burdened with at the moment, is a fearful one. It's one that says we're in the midst of apocalypse and we define apocalypse as catastrophe. But as you well know from your deep study of, of ancient Greek 
apocalypse <laughs> apocalypse does not actually mean catastrophe it means revelation yeah it means unveiling and so it is an apocalyptic moment i think it's a moment where more is being unveiled about who humans are and what we're for mm. but i don't think we're living in a moment of catastrophe uh you know everyone could ha- could be having a ca- any anyone listening to this show might actually be having a catastrophic moment in your life right now and if we were with you we would seek to care for you and protect you and bind your wounds and be with you through that pain but what our world our culture is going through at the moment is revelatory of who we really are and what the possibilities are there's a lot of mess there's a lot of pain there's a lot of shadow there's a lot of rage and there's a lot of connection and there's a lot of fertility and there's a lot of growth and there is a lot of love and there is a lot of healthy grief work going on and there are a lot of people of privilege waking up to not only our responsibility to serve the common good but that our lives will be better the more we can become less selfish yeah <laughs> that actually the path of becoming less selfish is joyful for the person who's doing it again i only i barely have an l plate in becoming less selfish i'm i'm not even sure i've been given the l plate yet i i would like to learn to be less selfish i do know from being around people who are like that and from tasting a little bit of what that's like there's more joy on the other side of transcending individualism there's more joy on the other side of giving up needing to possess everything for yourself you know this is all reminding me of something that you said to me years ago that has like stuck with me ever since and i've thought about a lot and it had to do with privilege and this was just something that you said in passing at the store mm-hmm. um you know we we have like a bunch of little conversations at at the store over the years that like add up to big conversations mm. and I forget the context of this conversation, but we were talking about the concept of privilege mm. and how hard it is for some people to to grasp. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some people really struggle mm. with the word privilege and what that means, especially if, say, they come from a lower class background. And mm. there there's a lot of anger around that phrase because of connotations that they that 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 it can be imbued with for some people right mm-hmm. and you said well it's really simple everyone has an area where they have power and mm-hmm. everyone has an area in their life where they have some weakness mm-hmm. and when you identify those things now you know how you are meant to serve others Mm-hmm. And it is that simple. I, I don't know if that's exactly the wording you use, but that was the basic idea. Yeah. And that and I thought that that was just such a, a helpful way of articulating this emotionally fraught topic of privilege. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. such a helpful way of of cutting through all of that anxiety and all of that angst and and getting to the heart of what. I think privilege is tr- the co- the word the concept privilege is is trying to get at. Does that make sense? Am I am, is is that mm-hmm. is that making sense? Yeah, I mean, so uh, my friend David Lamont, musician, puts he also it, he, he's uh, a great guy. Yeah, he's yeah. Bring bring what you have and ask for what you need. Exactly. Like 
that's the way he puts it. And um, there's no one who doesn't have something and there's no one who doesn't lack something. And clearly there are some people who have a lot more power Absolutely. Uh, than others. And and it even comes down to, I mean, some, some of us are challenged in the area of power over our own, our own bodies, hmm. um, power over our own thoughts. And then there's people who have the power to launch missiles and, and who sometimes do it. And so privilege has kind of become a buzzword and maybe a bit of jargon uh, that may not be helpful. I'd rather talk in terms of power and resources. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think what I'm hearing in all of this, it really sounds like the poetic incarnation of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, mm, and, but mm-hmm. but much less, you know, there's there's kind of a sterility and, and coldness to CBT, which actually, you know, for the best therapists I've ever had have been CBT therapists who were very like cut and dry. They would talk mm, to me for mm-hmm. five minutes or 10 minutes and they would be mm-hmm. like, okay, here's this cognitive distortion. You're going to work on this mm-hmm. for next week. Here's how you're going to work on it. Bye. See you. Mm-hmm. See you next week. Uh, that they, It was just like very cold, very to the point, very much like, you know, a, 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 a gym coach being like, you're going to do this thing for the next week. We'll see you next time. Bye. And, but that was the best it was the best therapy that I ever got. And mm-hmm. and what it revealed to me was just how much my thoughts were shaping were my perception of reality. There is mm-hmm. no there is no difference between our thoughts and our perception of reality. They're one and the same thing. And helping me become aware of in the terms of CBT, my cognitive distortions. The 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 things that I believe that are that are distortions of what's true or are perhaps telling me a story that isn't helpful to me. And what you're describing is a a much more kind of spiritual kind of CBT <laughs> for lack hmm. of a better term. Does that make sense? I mean kind of a, a more does. poetic well, I mean, a poetic CBT. Sure and it's not about to, to me, it's not about reframing a story in a direction that's just better uh, mm. because it feels better. I think it's better because it's true. It's true. Uh, and and I do think that there's there's like there's wisdom in the truth shall set you free. Now we'll never know what the full truth is, but we can get closer to it. <clears throat> and that's why we need L plates, right? Mm. Uh, to be curious. Is this really true? Has this really happened? Is Where am I in relation to the story? Maybe the best part of it. I'll give you an example. Had an experience a few years ago where I was going to have a drink with a friend and they got to the pub before me and they texted me to say that someone else was in the pub who they thought I might feel awkward being around. Someone I'd known a long time ago and just someone, you know, the way sometimes you bump into people that you went to high school with. And it's like, oh, I really don't want to see them right now. Right. Oh, yeah. and hope, hopefully we've all had experiences where you bump into them and you realize they were thinking the same thing. And then you have a really nice conversation. That you know, is, I, I, by the way, that is that is my life as a grocery store manager in the small <laughs> town where I grew up. Yeah. Literally people come in. Right. Yes. People come yeah. in. That yeah, yeah. really yeah, bad yeah. grinder hookup just walks in or <laughs> <laughs> that, that really or, you know, that that uh, friend from high school who said terrible yeah. things to you or vice versa walks in and suddenly you well, have to somehow deal with that. <laughs> And and sometimes they apologize. Yes. 
and sometimes they say they say it's really nice to see you and they connect with you and you're like wow i didn't connect with this person 30 years ago but we have a nice connection now mm. so my friend texted me to say so-and-so's there and I immediately felt like the walls were closing it. I just felt triggered, I guess. And this person hadn't really done anything. They had just not been particularly warm to me. Mm. <laughs> um, and I and I just was feeling vulnerable. So the story I could tell about that was I felt terrible because this person was going to be in the pub. That could be the story. Or I could tell the story, wow, the friend who I was meeting cared enough about me to notice, oh, Gareth might feel awkward if he sees this person in the pub. And so he texted me to say, would you like to go to a different pub instead? Mm. Now, which story is true um, and, and, and which story is better? It's, it's the more comprehensive one, which is like the headline is not person who was once not very nice to me in 1992 is in a pub. I can't go into the pub then. I could tell the story that way, but the truer story is another person cares enough about me to tell me, to notice. And that, if I, and in the moment, I didn't think about it that way, but in the moment, if I could have let his love in, his name is Simon, if I could have let Simon's love for me really permeate me, it would have been enough for me to go to that pub, go up to the guy that I'd gone to school with and say, hi. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Remember, we went to school together and, you know, to just allow myself feel so there, feel that love. No, people will often when you talk about poetic CBT, one of the, you know, the thing that hasn't really evolved yet in the in let's call it in the, in the world of medicine people. And I consider the vet, you know, therapists to be medicine people. And I've benefited greatly from uh, therapists who I think truly were medicine people sacred medicine people. And they were doing things like CBT and sensory motor psychotherapy with me. We were doing that together. But the thing that hasn't really evolved there yet is to knit together the individual story transformation with the structural realities of our lives. Because it's one thing to work on the story of uh, recovery from abusive experiences. It's another to go back into the house where those abusive experiences are still happening. It's one thing to work on the fear you might have about what might happen politically. And it's another thing to go back into the society where you can't control other people's behavior. And I haven't quite seen enough of a knitting together of how individual healing work. I guess you could, you could use an even more conventional example. If you have problems with your lungs because of air quality and you, and you take uh, medicine, maybe you have surgery because your lungs have been damaged, but you're still living in an environment where the air quality is poor. Yep. That's not your fault. And it's also not something that you can totally transform by yourself. Yeah. There's a That's ceiling, why in other words. There is a ceiling, but I don't think there's this, I don't think the ceiling applies to the human soul, mm. right? I think the soul or the spirit or the person can actually transform all of this and i and i it's not so much from my own experience that i think that it's because people who've suffered incomparably worse than whatever suffering there's been in my life 
have written about how they transformed that suffering. And some of them even later died as a result of the suffering. I'm thinking about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I'm thinking about people like Etty Hillisum, murdered in the Holocaust, and whose writing is, 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 is mystical contemplation filled with love and courage. And they still killed her, right? Yeah. And I don't, and, I, and that can sound blasé. I don't mean that that way. I think about Nelson Mandela, you know, uh, coming out of prison and, and, and refusing to hate the people who deserved his, at least deserved to be held accountable for what they had done by, you know, maliciously imprisoning him, never mind the apartheid regime in general. So the, I don't think the ceiling applies to the, to the potential of human individual experience. I think there are people who have had transformational experiences that are not spiritual bypassing. They're not denying the reality of the suffering. They're just living a bigger story. And the bigger story might well be, I woke up this morning on a spinning ball of blue, hanging out there in the universe, <laughs> surrounded by stars and the sun, in which I am literally made from the stardust from stars that died a long, long time ago. And I get to talk to another embodiment of stardust and imagine what a more loving world could look like. Like there are days when yeah. that is more than enough for me, where the ceiling comes in, and I, I love, I love you calling it a ceiling. I'm, I'm actually seeing a picture of like a box or just a room, uh, like a room on a sitcom where you're you're looking into the room, or maybe even looking like the this yeah, it's like zoom a window here. It's a dollhouse. There's no front on it. We're looking into it and we're going, how could we raise this ceiling? How could we? Why there shouldn't be a door there, or there needs to be a wall there and that's why we do this storytelling in community mm -hmm. and that's why some communities that don't do very healthy things are full of people because people need to be in community and they will go to the community that invites them so we do this thing called porch circles where we gather in groups of between three to eight people you need three people to make it a community eight is about the eight is kind of the ceiling on the number of people who can have a meaningful conversation uh, mm. in one go but there's no there's no rules we're not gonna you're not gonna get in trouble if you bring 11 uh, people <laughs> and we and we we just ask four questions the first two questions are are about stuff that's going on on the inside the first one is what's something that's life-giving to you since we last met just one thing and the second question is what's something that's not life-giving or draining you or challenging you since we last met just one thing those two questions are elicit far richer and more meaningful answers than how you doing, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, the third question, what's the new story that you feel called to live between now and when we next meet? Give one concrete example. So, you know, we all want to change the world. We all want to bring peace on earth. Or some of us just want to be left alone, <laughs> right? Like, um, or some of us feel that the best way that we could bring peace on earth would be to be left alone. <laughs> um, this question's a bit deeper than that. Give one concrete example of the new story you want to live. I always, it's funny, Stephen, I, I think this may have come from you years and years ago. One of the examples I give when I'm telling people about this storytelling method is I want to, when I'm next in a grocery store, have eye contact with the person serving me at the checkout, say hello and smile. Absolutely. That's what I want. That's what I want to do. And that, of course, it's like a 
you know, it's like dominoes. It leads to you doing other things. And mm-hmm. I want to open myself to the person serving me might want to have eye contact with me too. They have a story that could that could be a gift to me too. So that's the third question. And then the last one, and this is where we get into raising the ceiling and opening the doors or maybe knocking down the walls that need to be knocked down. Uh, what's the help that you need? And what's the help that you can offer? Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are massive global and geopolitical and national issues that none of us are quite sure how we can help. But there are also most of the stuff that's faced, facing most of us on a day-to-day basis could be helped by a group of, of three people or eight people saying, you can't pay your rent. We're going to help you pay your rent. You need a babysitter and you can't afford a babysitter so that you can get out for an, an evening of enjoyment by yourself or with your partner we're going to pay for the babysitter or we'll provide the babysitting. You are having an existential crisis and you need someone to go for a walk with you every Saturday for the rest of your life just to help you walk through that. Well, maybe we'll do the next two Saturdays and we'll, we'll see where we're at after two Saturdays. Um, uh, this is the way people have always done it. Our Western industrial culture makes it at one level easier for us to connect with each other and to have these conversations, but it doesn't encourage us to do so. And somebody always has to go first. And that's all it takes. Somebody went before me. I learned from them. I'm with other people. We, we're in these kind of conversations all the time. There's no ceiling to the potential transformation of the, of the soul. And where there is a ceiling in people's experience of reality, even though that experience is a story, You'd want to help from a place of compassion because a story about compassion would be a better story to live than a story about selfishness. I think that's a great note to end on. As always, every time we talk, I feel like that we can go for many more hours. But this has been great, and you're welcome back anytime. I would love to do this again. Hopefully not in, you know, six years. <laughs> like the, or, or Let's see. No, I yeah, I think it's been six. So we... I think we did our first show together wow. in 2017. Uh, really? 18, 19, 20. Wow. Well, yeah, so listen, five years, five years. So you're welcome back uh, and definitely before five years has passed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and every time we talk, I, I, I always feel, and I really mean this, that you're one of the best things about Western North Carolina. Oh, that's and, so sweet uh, of you to say. <laughs> you, 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 bring such, you bring such a gift and... Uh, uh, you help me calibrate and recalibrate my thoughts. So yeah, you too, for sure. Get a, get a t-shirt designed for your podcast that has an L plate on it. I will. You're embodying and modeling that curiosity, which uh, is just what the world needs. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And that. the world also needs to buy my book, right? This is when you're going to... The world definitely needs to buy your book. <laughs> it's called How Not to Be Afraid. Everyone should go read it. It has a gorgeous, like, turquoise green cover. And uh, people should go buy it online. And, uh, yeah, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. If you could send me the, a link to the best place to buy your book. Just then... go to hownottobeafraid.com and it Perfect. has links on it. Perfect. I will so. post that in the show notes. Right. Yeah, and... Um, I would love to do this again. I would love to have you, if you're up for it, I would love to have you be uh, a returning guest. Ah, thank uh, you, Stephen. Sacred I appreciate team. it. Glad yep. to. Glad to. Awesome. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 117. The theme song is wild. You can find it on 
Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is supported by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.